Wired into technology transformation, this is the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Hello, listener. It's that time again. It's episode 17 of the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Your reward for doing so is the company of our delightful panel today, made up of Digital Bulletin CEO, Romilly Broad. Hello. And for the very first time, our staff writer for Digital Bulletin and Tech for Good, Beatrice Valero. Hi, B. Hi, good morning. How are we, guys? Rom, have, have you done anything interesting or zany since the last pod? I'm, I'm intrigued to know how this latest lockdown has, you know, have brought out your creativity, shall we say? Well, I, uh, well, it, it hasn't really, but I did over the weekend. So last week we had a lot of snow in this country. And over the weekend, I watched it melt. <laughs> so exciting. It was actually, it was amazing because the last piece of excitement I had was several weeks ago when I painted my kid's bedroom and watched that dry. That's lockdown entertainment for me these days. It sounds enthralling. I've done Netflix. There's nothing left on there for me now. Now it's snow (laughs) and paint. B, how are you? Excited? I am excited to bring on some female voices to the podcast. Absolutely, yeah. It's about time, isn't it, really? You, you must have finished Netflix as well, Be You're young. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I've had, like, double the amount of snow, because obviously I was in Madrid, and that was quite crazy. Yeah, any amount of snow in Madrid is crazy, I think. Um, right, listener, we have our usual trove of audio treasure for you today. B is here, and we will quiz her on our latest digital bulletin case study, which featured Schneider Electric. We'll also analyze Bitcoin's recent surge and the ever-evolving cryptocurrency landscape, while I interview Avenard's Richard Gregory on the rise of the digital workplace. But first, here's some news. Now, a couple of months ago on the pod, we spoke in depth about NVIDIA's proposed takeover of ARM. And we mentioned then that there might be some stern opposition to the $40 billion deal. And we have seen some this week with Qualcomm raising objections to the Federal Trade Commission and the European Commission. I think the EU have also um, raised some concerns about that deal, so something to keep an eye on, that's for sure. Another big deal that has been put on the back burner is the proposed sale of TikTok's US operations to Oracle and Walmart. President Biden is wanting to undertake a review of Donald Trump's policies around Chinese tech companies, so that has been shelved for now. Elsewhere this month, we had many of the world's car manufacturers get in a bit of a tiz about the global chip shortage. A number have been forced to slow production and even close factories with semiconductor supplies running low. We have also seen ATOS walk away from a potential takeover of DXC technology. UiPath and Databricks have closed monster funding rounds. And we've had the small matter of Jeff Bezos stepping down as CEO of Amazon. Now you can get a collection of the very best reporting on these stories and many, many more via the bulletin on digitalbulletin.com. But next, we are going to mine some Bitcoin debate as a number of big companies make bets on the cryptocurrency and discuss what it might mean for the crypto market and wider financial services going forward. The headline investment was, of course, from Tesla. When Elon Musk announced last week that Tesla has bought $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin, it triggered another rally, which saw Bitcoin's value increase by 20% in just a few days. 
It has now grown by 1,100% since last March. Clearly, nobody told crypto investors about the global pandemic that's going on. Now, there has been a slight drop in value in recent days, as some investors have cashed in, understandably. But Rom, when historians many years from now kind of chart the rise of cryptocurrencies, how many of them do you think will be talking about the events of the last week or so and that man, Elon Musk? It's a, it's a very good question, isn't it? Um, I, I, I think seven. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know. I think this is the beginning of something, but understanding exactly what some, that something ends up being is obviously very hard to predict. I think there's um, Musk has been accused of playing uh, a little bit fast and loose with the old uh, the old markets in the past. Um, it's a cynic would say he's gone and spent a bunch of money on Bitcoin and then announced the fact, and then it's gone up loads in, in value. And mm, <laughs> I wonder what. I wonder what that means. It's, it's, you know, it's one of the best in uses of, of Tesla's cash you, that you could imagine. And I think that's actually part of the bigger story here, which is that, um, you know, there, there's a thought now that other tech companies might go and use some of their cash in this way. And there's certainly good reasons to do that right now uh, because of the pandemic. Um, uh, interest rates are just incredibly low. So if you're trying to exercise the muscles of your cash reserves and make that into more money, it's you know your options are kind of limited at the moment. And Bitcoin, as risky as it is, is is a way to turn a quick buck. Um, but it's you know you've got to have a lot of money. Now the tech companies do have a lot of money and they can afford to take that risk. But will others join suit? Uh, you know I don't know how quickly will they all cash out. With, it, it's just an unknown, isn't it? Um, yeah. I think one possible scenario is um, you you get a bunch of big tech companies putting some more of their money in the same sort of places as Tesla, and then regulators around the world get really, really, really interested, <laughs> and they start to say, "Okay, let's calm this down because we we can't afford to have that much risk, that much capital at risk, in because Bitcoin is just such a volatile thing." Um, and, you know, in the end, I think I suspect that might just dampen everything down a little bit and stabilize it. Um, yeah, because the, the move from Tesla was a shock, even though um, obviously we're talking about it now like it's something we might have expected at the time. It was a shock when when they announced they'd done this. And do, do you realistically think like Apple or Google would just go out and buy billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin? I'm They've got sure. billions of dollars lying around that yeah. aren't working very hard for them right now. So, you know, they might, um, but it is, you know, it, it's risky. And, you know, you, when you think about Apple, you don't necessarily associate it with huge risk taking kind of behavior. But, um, you know, the, it must be very tempting because, you know, where there is volatility, there's opportunity if you're willing to um, take the chance and um, and again, I think that's why the regulators are ultimately going to get involved. They don't want um the markets to be become riven with with this kind of crazy risk taking um which you know obviously there are precedents for for that sort of thing like in 2008 um so you know uh i, I don't know i don't know i'm i'm a cynic when it comes to bitcoin anyway i find it very difficult to um, oh great i'm looking forward to getting your um your views and or get, <laughs> hearing more about your cynicism in a bit yeah it's interesting you know whether they whether they do it or not will they publicly kind of announce it so quickly like elon musk did um 
I don't think so, even if they did decide to do it. B, what's your kind of view on the crypto revolution and the events of the, of the past week? And I know you're kind of big on tech regulations. You've got a new new piece uh, coming up in the next, next, next few issues of Digital Bulletin around regulations. It's clear that the regulation side of things is the big kind of unexplored area of, of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, isn't it? Yeah, it's definitely the big unknown right now, and especially with the events of the last two weeks. I think if anyone was unsure about the need to regulate things like cryptocurrencies after the whole frenzy with uh, GameStop and Reddit, and now with the whole Tesla thing, everyone's just keep asking for regulations. So it's just a matter of what will those regulations be? Obviously, the EU uh, last September, they proposed a MECA, which is a new set of regulations, but those could take a few years to come into effect. And there's other different countries that are approaching in totally different ways, like China, for example, banned cryptocurrencies. India has announced they'll ban them as well and wants to create their own cryptocurrency, which also raises questions of, oh, well, will the dollar be forever the main currency of the world or will be substituted by a new digital dollar or perhaps, I know, Bitcoin or something else. So I think uh, regulators all over the world, as Ram said, interested in it. It's just a matter of what decisions they take and in which direction they choose to go to from here. That's it, isn't it? I don't think anyone's doubting the kind of existence of cryptocurrencies going forward, but it's it's about you know which ones are actually going to and and who's who's going to kind of make the decisions and hold the power. Brings us nicely onto the topic of banks, Ram, because you tend to think banks are under a huge amount of threats from things like Bitcoin, but. Um, Many of them are actually kind of exploring um, cryptocurrencies in, in a lot of detail. B mentioned countries there that have kind of made pledges to kind of maybe create their own cryptocurrencies. In terms of the bigger picture and the, the kind of impact on the financial services kind of sector as a whole, where, where do you kind of currently see it? Well, there's um, there's obviously a lot of vested interests in not having things get too crazy and disrupted because there's a lot of people that act as middlemen in currency markets at the minute and the primary threat of bitcoin is that you get to remove all of that and democratize everything and um that's probably the one good thing i can find think of to say about bitcoin <laughs> in that, that it has that sort of promise but um when it when it comes to banks i think um that will be interesting obviously there are certain you know mastercard for example i think are, are looking at um uh, enabling bitcoin transactions across their you know enormous network that would be a bit of a game changer um but in terms of you know the 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 big banks i i don't know i think they're they're gonna be pretty cautious partly because of the 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 threat of regulation that's coming on obviously everybody's all the big regulators are looking at it um they're going to do something in the end that will um you know have some sort of um dampening effect on everything and I would imagine that the banks are sitting there going, well, we could take a, a few punts now. We could try and make some um, make some dollar by making these investments. But actually, probably in the not too distant future, the returns on that are going to be reduced. And why take the risk? And I, I, I think I, I don't know. I'm by far from being an expert, but I expect the banks would be. I, I kind of don't really think that they're going to go all in on it. It, it. I think they would probably be taking a much longer term view um than 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 that I, but i you know i i don't know i don't know yeah there was a um there's a there's a pretty damning kind of editorial in the financial times actually in reaction to the tesla stuff around um the an impact on the environment well, there's a stunning fact in in this article which said that one bitcoin 
transaction uses up as much power as 460,000 visa transactions, which was astonishing. Um, and Elon Musk has been preaching a lot about kind of carbon reduction and, and general environmental matters, while also at the same time buying loads and loads of Bitcoin. B, there's a contradiction there, isn't there? It is. It's quite ironic, to be honest. And the stat that stood out to me is that during 2019, Bitcoin consumed as much electricity as like whole countries like Argentina or Norway. So it's it's really interesting. Obviously, mining Bitcoin it has a very high environmental impact. It requires a lot of energy, and because it can be done remotely, it's usually done in countries again like India, China, or just Kazakhstan that have very low restrictions on when it comes to renewable energies. So obviously, the more people use Bitcoin, the worse the impact gets. And it, yeah, it's really funny that Musk is now defending Bitcoin when he like yesterday, he also talked about how he wanted the Biden administration to put a carbon tax on companies um, to tax their environmental impact. And obviously, he's been given a lot of money for competitions that support projects to reduce the carbon in the atmosphere and in the water. So yeah, it's really interesting to see how he's like kind of playing both ways. He's, he's very good at saying things, isn't he, Musk? Very good at saying yeah. things. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rom, I know you'll have a view on the environmental side of things as well. It's going to be interesting to to know how that kind of develops in the future because we know computational capacity is, is also increasing rapidly. There's a huge kind of um, environmental impact there. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's that's a a general issue in the yeah. sense that the more uh, the more data centers we need and the more we have them on the edge and so on, the bigger this issue is. But and and actually, this comes right to the nub of why I just have a. It's not a particularly rational view about Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. It's an emotional one, which says, "Look, I can't think of any other currency that is actively damaging the world every time someone uses it." Like, I mean. That's that's not entirely true. Obviously, there is a cost to uh, other forms of currency, but but Bitcoin and crypto generally is is built literally the mechanism of making it happen has an environmental cost, and so for that reason alone, you just want it to stop and say, look, hang on, what what is the purpose of this? What is the value of this apart from making people money? Apart from helping people to take some money and turn it into more money with an environmental cost? There's no contribution there to the world. It's just, um, it's just, it's the definition of, of unfettered kind of damaging capitalism. Now, I'm not against capitalism, by the way, just before you start accusing me of being a flag carrying commie or something. <laughs> Capitalism is good, generally speaking, apart from when it exists purely for its own ends. And I, I was thinking about this earlier, and it reminded me of a Shakespeare quote <laughs> from uh, from Macbeth. He says something like, um, Bitcoin is a story told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. It's amazing, it's amazing that Shakespeare foresaw Bitcoin and managed he to did. introduce that That's word to the language. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but that's that's it. I, I think... Well, where we need to go, and obviously we think and talk about this sort of stuff through Tech for Good a lot, and it's about saying, how do we adjust our value systems to say, look, it's not just about the dollar, it's about what you can do through, you know, we, we focus on technology, but through all of the things we do that encapsulate a sustainable way of thinking about it. We, we talk about circular economies and we talk about, you know, all, all these other things that hopefully ultimately end up with us focusing on things that matter most. 
Bitcoin is the opposite, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And I just wish it would go away. I think it's very clever, by the way. I think blockchain is wonderful. Um, but B Bitcoin has just become this sort of ugly monster in the corner of the financial world that really, you know, and now the value of obviously Bitcoin is is so high that that really it doesn't serve anybody any good unless they're already very rich. So it's kind of, you know, great. The, the words of a man who definitely regrets not buying them for about 10p in 2006. B, are you a skeptic or an, or an optimist? What's ultimately, what's your position? Um, I'm undecided yet, but I do think it's kind of uh, interesting how companies are pledging more and more to reduce their environmental impact and be carbon neutral. And at the same time, be interested in, in Bitcoin. I don't see how those two things can work together. So in the environmental part, I'm more of a skeptic, but yeah. we'll see. Yeah, I think in the environment and the global warming trumps everything, doesn't it? There was an interesting quote from Bill Gates this week where he said that dealing with COVID is very, very easy compared to the problems we have with climate change. And I think um, that's probably a good note to finish on. It's time. Um, thanks, guys. It was Really good chat. That it's time now for us to escape the crypto bubble and delve into the world of industrial technologies after this. Find us as Digital Bulletin on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram, and at Digi underscore Bulletin on Twitter. For our case study section this month, we are going to discuss our feature with Schneider Electric which was published in the February edition of Digital Bulletin. Now, Schneider has been around for a long time, since 1836, in fact, when Schneider Crusoe was founded as an iron and steel mill in France. Today, Schneider Electric's mission is to support the industrial sector with digital technology, with the aim of improving efficiency and sustainability for some big companies. We had the great pleasure of speaking to three of Schneider Electric's technology leaders on the topics of advanced solutions for industry and its adoption of new business models to make it all happen. But before we open things up to the panel, here is Helenio Gillibert, who is Schneider's Senior Director for Edge Solutions, talking a bit more about the company's approach. One of our goals is to make technology invisible to our customers. So at the end of the day, our customers are not in a business to implement technology and they're not in a business to maintain technology. They're in the business of either producing oil, manufacturing cars, um, pro providing clean water. You know, those are the core businesses, right? So we want to make technology invisible to them. We want to allow them to focus on their core business and we want to make sure that we unlock value that was not accessible to them before. B, your piece is about kind of Schneider's own transformation to meet their customer needs, isn't it? And Helenio kind of hinted at it there. But what, what does the company mean when it, it kind of says it wants to be a digital partner? It's quite a deep relationship it's kind of um, putting forward with its customers, isn't it? Yeah, it's a deep relationship, a big transformation from how their business worked before. Um, but yeah, it's exactly what you said. Schneider wants to adapt to the new technologies and customer demands. And instead of just being a vendor, like it used to be in selling a specific product and then leaving, it wants to be a partner so that it's a, a service, basically. It works with the company for a long time and they can adapt their solutions in real time to the specific needs that come, which is very important in times like now where everything's changing by the minute. And yeah, as you said, there's no point of a company right now managing or developing an email server 
when that's not their main business. So it's much easier to just um, buy that solution for another company. And that's what Schneider wants to do. And so it wants to create a deep partnership with their customers um, for the long run. Yeah, um, this is this is a theme we we hear quite a lot about this um, very kind of deep partnership. From Schneider's perspective, it's focused around kind of three core areas of technology, isn't it? Do you want to talk a bit about them? Yes. So it's cloud, edge, and AI. Yeah. Which I'm sorry, everyone's heard a lot about them in <laughs> the past year. Um, but yeah, they've existed for a while, but definitely with COVID in the past few years, they've accelerated. And now they have things like edge computing, for example. It has a lot of higher processing capabilities, memorability, storage. It's a lot cheaper as well. And it basically allows companies to bring their data storage closer to the devices. And then that, when you add that to the cloud and to AI, what it allows is for companies to just monitor their machines from the distance and also being able to adapt them in real time to things that are happening. So instead of having an engineer going to the machine and adapting it, in the moment, uh, you can just do it remotely and automatically. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a huge transformation. Yeah, some really interesting um, examples there. Rom, Schneider are moving to this subscription model. A subscription model is a really kind of um, popular way of, of selling, a company selling their products now, isn't it? And you, you, we, we think of like software as a service and, and a company managing kind of end-to-end -end that product for their customer. It's, it's not a surprise that Schneider are adopting something similar, even though their scope of work is a lot greater, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's perfectly logical thing to do, isn't it? If you think about it, I mean, we've you you look over the last few decades, servitization as a thing has been um, a constant as as folks that make stuff and sell them to other people um, find ways of uh, of supporting that in an after sales sense so they're saying well look you know now we've provided you this thing now there's a bunch of services we can tack on to the end of it the ultimate um you know the the ultimate end point of that is where actually all, all you're doing is providing services and you can see that all over the place um uh so so for example i'm bombarded with adverts constantly from uh volvo who are saying look why don't you subscribe to my cars and it's like, well, okay. So that's the conversion of products into, into services and Schneider's applying the same logic and it makes perfect sense. If they wanna be build deep, ongoing, agile and responsive relationships um, with their customers, so they're not just providing goodies, they're providing goodies with benefits, that's the best way you can possibly go. And I think that's generally true of anybody who's providing services, uh, especially, businesses providing services to other businesses um, and especially when it involves technology right because it's moving so rapidly and people are changing flowing in and out and around and change management is such a big part of all of that that if you need your uh, providers uh, your technology providers to be as quick and responsive at changing as you as an organization are and so and that's a that's a provision of far more than just uh, tools it's it's a whole relationship that they're that they're subscribing to yeah something i hear a lot when, when i talk to executives about this kind of trend is that you're almost creating another company which is the the service provider and the customer creates or working around whatever projects they're on and that that kind of becomes you're working as one you're becoming one kind of organization it, the, the kind of the, the the operating model runs that kind of close together um so yeah i mean 
to, to move it on, a significant part of Schneider's own transformation has been the modernization of its factories. Um, B mentioned earlier, it has 400 and it has successfully automated six factories so far with some eye-catching results. For example, its factory in Kentucky has made savings of $6.6 million and reduced CO2 emissions by 78% since it joined the program. A key piece of factory technology for Schneider Electric is the Autonomous Production Advisor, which you can read a lot more about in B's piece. It's a software solution which monitors industrial machines and makes predictions and suggestions to improve efficiency. It has now taken this product to market, and here is Fahad Sahir, Schneider's Digital Solutions Manager, to explain more. Autonomous Production Advisor is a product of ideas and customer collaboration in Schneider Electric. The, the solution really came into play where we went out and asked customers how they see digital technologies solve their problems. And the best part was that in collaboration with the customers, we came up with the best mix of cloud, AI, data analytics, and we put it all together in, in the Autonomous Production Advisor. And that has helped us pave way in, in how such technologies can get easily adapted when you have feedback from customer and the technology is developed in collaboration with customer feedback. And Autonomous Production Advisor is not just a solution out of a box, it is a solution that adapts to the customer needs. B, it's clear that collaboration is really important to, to Schneider Electric. Let's talk about kind of ecosystems because they work, don't they, with a lot of companies to stay at the cutting edge. They do. So yeah, it is very important, not just with their customers, but also with other companies. So when I was talking to Helenia and Pat, they talk about how what's happening in the IT industry where suppliers work together to kind of develop the best product possible and then sell that to the client. So they're envisioning something very similar to that happening in the industrial world. And to do that and to foster that, Schneider Electric has created the Schneider Electric Exchange that's where companies can work together and kind of upload their solutions. For example, with the autonomous production advisor that Fad was talking about, if someone changed or improved a, a piece of software that's related to that, they could upload it to the exchange and then other people could download it as well. And there's like fostering this climate on collaboration. Uh, but also with the startups, so not just the big players like Accenture or Claritai, but um, now innovation the cost of innovation is a lot lower so it's a lot more affordable to develop new solutions and schneider has been working with a lot of the startups like kelvin who has developed uh, control operations sorry control systems for the autonomous production advisor to make it safer and to optimize its operations so yeah definitely we can see how the industry is changing a lot in that way and kind of moving towards a different type of model Ron, why do you think big companies are so keen to work with startups? What do you think they're trying to tap? Um, agility and innovation. Ultimately, it's it's you um, it, you if by participating in an ecosystem of startups who are trying new things, you as a large organization. And this sounds a bit cynical, but as a large organization, you're deferring a lot of the risk onto them um, because innovating is about much more than just putting some money into developing some stuff. It's about doing that and then implementing it. Now, if you try and do that yourself internally, you suck up resources into that exercise, and then um, you, you know, and it's easy to 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 get stuck into things like you know, I guess it's like a gambler's fallacy. You say, right, well, we're going to put a bunch of money here internally into this particular thing that we're going to that we're going to develop, and it's not quite working. Yet. It's not quite working. Yet. Let's just put more money and more money and more money. It's much better to go and get someone else to do that. 
um, and then test things, test things out. But I, you know, I think I think this is all really interesting um, in in the sense of, you know, we've been hearing for years about um, the intelligent enterprise, as it were, which is, you know, a kind of I don't want to say singularity. I'm going to say singularity. It's kind of a, a point at which we've got all of these different things coming together, whether it's, um, you know, uh, advanced analytics and edge computing and all these other things that ultimately provide a, 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 an intelligent source of truth for any company to kind of op run itself efficiently. And, and um, th this feels to me like um, Schneider's taking a fairly large step forward in, in that sense and being able to provide the you know the the foundations of that kind of thing to its clients but and that's particularly interesting when you couple it with the kind of the subscription idea which is which is saying look we're not just going to provide you this and we're going to take an x amount of money and then good luck it's saying actually no we want to embed this service into your this intelligence if you like into your organization so that you can forever more become <laughs> more adept at using these things and i think you know it's it's a really smart move by schneider and and i suspect by their clients as well to adopt it yeah. it's definitely a more long-term perspective yeah I, I find it really interesting when we speak to these companies who have such a long history 1836 schneider was first formed as an iron mill as i said earlier it reminds me wrong of the the story we did with hartman group with an equally kind of older company who just they just have to continually change and evolve and in a way they just become different companies every like 10 years because they're just adapting to the market <laughs> Right, right, exactly, and um, they they have to adapt, of course. Um, Hartman's particularly interesting, and it's kind of similar to Schneider in a way, and that a lot of what they deal in is kind of old school technology stuff. It's basic things. So in Hartman's case, that they're just in case people don't know, <clears throat> they um they invented the sterile bandage back in whenever that was, and saved millions of lives by doing it. Um, and then went on, and they they still you know most hospitals you go into you'll be able to look around and see the, the Hartman brand on things. It's one of the biggest companies you've never heard of kind of thing, but they're probably producing the juice that gets put into your arm <laughs> um, and the, and the, and the plasters that get put on your head, you know, when you have you know, had a bit of a heavy night, um, whatever it is, but they've developed all sorts of interesting service level stuff around the provision of their products, particularly when they're saying, look, we can, you know, plug these things into your hospital. We'll make the procurement much more intelligent, so that you know you're ordering the right stuff at the right time and making sure your inventory is at the right, you, your stock management of these things is is you know at the right level. Um, it's it's kind of the same process. And actually, a lot of the big players, these big companies that have been around for a very long time, who are excellent at doing, uh, you know, fairly um, fundamental things, are able to find big gains by uh, adapting and 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 being uh, nimble at the edges with new technologies. Yeah. Great stuff. B, what, what were your kind of main conclusions from this case study? It must have been great to, to speak to three people for such a big company who are, who are working within that huge organization to just kind of make, make it as agile as it can be. It must have been a really interesting project to work on. Yes, it was fascinating to see how, yeah, such a huge company that has such a huge history changes itself just to stay relevant. And also it was a really international project, which was really fun. Obviously, I, they, I spoke with three managers, but one of them was in Canada and then another one was in Australia. So that's one of the things of this COVID era that we might not be able to meet in person, but we can definitely have a lot more conversations across the globe, which is great. Uh, so it was, it was really exciting. 
Yeah, always good to get a global perspective. Right, we are going to move on now, but you can check out B's work in its totality over on digitalbulletin.com with a feature-length article and two videos on Schneider Electric's culture-first transformation. Next for us, the digital workplace. Power up your day with the Bulletin Brief, the latest news, insights, and opinion delivered straight to your inbox. Recently, I had the chance to sit down in a virtual sense with Richard Gregory, who is the Senior Director for Modern Workplace Solutions at Avenard. A joint venture between Microsoft and Accenture, Avenard provides IT consulting and services to a global client list. And Gregory is heavily involved in its work around the digital workplace, which has been a hot topic since the onset of COVID-19. In the interview, I speak to Richard about what future workplaces might look like and the role of automation and data analytics. But first, I asked him just how quickly the dynamics of work are currently changing. I think rapidly, um, Ben. I mean, for us, you look at the wider the wider trends, whether that be around the ability to work from anywhere, automation, employee experience, well-being. I mean, they've all been there. They, they've all been macro trends for a number of years. So I don't necessarily think that anything's massively changed in terms of what organizations are doing. But in terms of the speed that they're having to adapt, I mean, is it Satya Nadella who said that, ultimately two or three years worth of transformations been boiled down into the last six months. Um, and I don't think we're gonna see that pace of change stop anytime soon. If anything, I think organizations are gonna have to accelerate that pace of change um, to survive. Gartner put out a really interesting um, survey, their C global CEO survey just before Christmas. And they said that the number two challenge that CEOs have is that behavioral change, that change of the organization to go quickly enough to, to ultimately survive in this challenging time. One of the key kind of buzzwords and technologies, Richard, is, is automation. Maybe you can tell us how automation is being used to improve workplaces and augment workforces. Yeah, um, absolutely. So we've seen for a number of years now, clients talk about uh, the opportunities with automation. Um, as I think McKinsey a few years ago said, look, organizations have got the opportunity to kind of grow their productivity by about 1.2% a year, um, uh, which is huge between now and 2030. But we also know that there's 50% of automation projects fail. And typically they fail because they forget that people element. They focus too much on the technology, too much on the processes and not enough about the people. Um, and um, and look, the, the opportunities with automation are huge, whether it be around manufacturing lines and, and robotics, even in the airline industry, dare we think about them, but the technology and the robotics that have been um, implemented over the years to kind of automatically load bags into uh, into airplanes or if we think about things like hollow lens on production uh production lines let alone um ai and rpa technology and kind of the the workflow space and i guess from my perspective and from a knowledge worker's perspective you look at some of the um some of the latest technology around um uh, automating the the finding and the searching of knowledge and Microsoft's recent announcement around um, Project Viva and uh, Viva Topics. I mean, that has the opportunity to to revolutionise um, kind of the knowledge worker. If 
an hour a day is spent trying to find or replicate knowledge that's already available. So um, I, I think we're just going to see this whole area of automation again continue to accelerate. And what were once seen as proof of concepts now kind of become the norm, but only if they can kind of tackle that human element then. Yeah, there are so many use cases on there, but you still feel that we're only really scratching the surface um, with this. What about workplace analytics, Richard? First of all, what, what are workplace analytics and, and what is the kind of real value that businesses can get from, from this area? Crikey, wow, what, what a question. I mean, I, 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 this term workplace analytics gets banded around a lot and I guess it means different things to different people. On, on one hand, you've got um, a product, Microsoft Workplace Analytics, that is kind of becoming the de facto way of measuring um, productivity, culture, well-being within organizations. And I guess on the other hand, you've got kind of the macro topic of workplace analytics that could encompass everything from kind of HR analytics to usage data to productivity data to, to IoT data and data from kind of smart buildings. So I don't think there's a one size fits all um, kind of definition of what we mean. Ultimately, though, what we do know is that organizations need to be capturing and putting to use that data that they hold. I guess not just getting insights, but being able to turn insights into action and whether that be in a smart spaces context around saving money, sh shutting off floors, improving experiences, or whether that be around productivity and well-being. Ultimately, for me, it kind of doesn't matter what we what we describe it as, as long as we're actually getting these metrics and putting them into action within organizations. Now, Richard, we know Avenard works with a multitude of clients of really interesting projects. What would you say is the most interesting kind of client project that you can share with us or one of the most interesting ones? Yeah, it's actually that uh, we just touched on it a moment ago, talking about workplace analytics. And for a lot of organizations at the moment, I mean, the, the shifts in um, kind of remote work, COVID that we've seen over the last 12 months have been um, seismic. I mean, the fact that we all can't meet has resulted in some really interesting trends coming out. I mean, we're seeing whilst collaboration in organizations has kind of increased by 15%, actually the inter-team collaboration has decreased by 15%, i.e. we're innovating less. We're seeing trends like um, the amount of focus time, i.e. the amount of time that we actually have to be productive, decreasing by about 10 to 15 percent, i.e. whilst on the outside of things, things look to be rosy and we're all adjusting. Actually, when you, you drill down into some of those metrics, kind of the, the picture isn't the same. And we're working with a number of clients now that have kind of taken that challenge on and gone, look, how can we take that data and those insights and actually start to make change happen within our organizations. I guess kind of picking up on that theme I talked about earlier around it being one of the CEO's biggest challenges is no longer just good enough to get insight, it's how do you turn that insight into action? And we're working with a number of clients, um, major, major multinationals to, to take that data, combine that data science with things like behavioral science, behavioral economics, things like nudge theory, so that you're not only taking the data and doing nothing with it, but you're actually helping guide, coach, nudge people to be the best that they can be in the flow of work. And I guess the best example I can give Ben is 
um, within Avenard, we, we see that um, about 72% of our employees haven't had one-to-ones with their line managers in the last two weeks. And we all know the benefits that that can bring in terms of productivity, well-being, resilience. So I guess, why do people not do it? And they typically don't do it because they forget or there's a whole bunch of friction associated with booking that time. So we've started to combine, like I said, data science with nudge theory and the behavioral economics elements with kind of automation through platforms like Teams to really simplify those experiences. So they are having a fundamental impact on how people change. And I guess over the medium to long term, will start to become ingrained in people's psyche and also be ingrained in the behaviors that um, that they they look to do over the medium term. So I think that's really at the cutting edge of kind of this workplace analytics piece, turning insight into action at scale and pace. Yeah, it sounds to me, Richard, that you're saying data and how we use data is is really kind of underpinning this this transformation that we're going through at the moment of of the future of work and the workplace. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's right. And uh, but I think it, it's more than that. It's not just reporting on it; it's doing something productive with it um, and making change happen. We can create as many Power BI dashboards as we want. It's doing something with that data that um, I think organizations kind of need to get their head around and doing something that actually makes us net better off as people and employees. Yeah. Now, obviously, Avenard is is working at the cutting edge of these technologies, but can even Avenard and, and yourself imagine kind of what the future workplace might be and whether it's something we can't even imagine right now, or is it something that is going to be perhaps even, you know, more normal than we might think it will be? You know, is, is that is that something you think about? And what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, wow. Um, I mean, if I think in the short term, I think where we're going to be over kind of the next two years, we're obviously going to start to transition back to physical workspace. I think there'll be fewer um, fewer people that are that are working 100% of their time, but we're certainly not going to go back to where we are. And like I say, a lot of organizations have kind of dealt with the, the digital workplace. They're now starting to think about what changes do we need to make to the physical workspace, i.e. no more chicken coops, but more collaborative space, more IoT data, digital um, digital twins of that workplace. And I mean, that will start to go into alternative space and virtual space, things like alt space, um, SharePoint spaces, VR, XR, I think will be here within the next two years. Um, I, I think more broadly than that, we're going to start to see uh, technology become far more human centered. And what do I mean by that? Starting to take brainwaves, starting to take analytics and data from things like our, our watches, starting to play back into how that shapes our experience as employees. So that actually we'll start to create a really hyper customized, hyper personalized experience so that each individual's experience within the workplace will vary dramatically. Um, and, and I don't think that's t- that's too far away. Over the medium to long term, I mean, obviously, five, 10 years, who knows what's that, what that's going to look like in terms of robotics and some of the wider automation trends.
Right, it's time to let you go, listener. But before we do, a couple of plugs. Did you know that you can listen to our best long-form written content in podcast form? B's Schneider Electric Case Study and another excellent offering on IKEA went live last week, so well worth getting your ears around. Also last week, we launched issue seven of the Tech for Good magazine, which investigates how NASA and the European Space Agency are using satellites to lead the fight back against global warming. And Bitcoin. Last but not least, I want to say thanks to the panel. Romilly, thank you. Uh, no, no, thank you. And B, thank you. Fantastic debut. Thank you. Thank you for welcoming me to the podcast. No worries at all. And we'll be back same place, approximately the same time of the month in March. Bye bye. That was the Digital Bulletin Podcast, brought to you by Bulletin Media. Listen and subscribe to a range of podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Plug in for news, features and case studies on the very latest in enterprise technology and digital transformation.